quick content warning on this episode, we will touch on topics related to eating disorders and binge eating, so if this episode isn't for you, take care of yourself and we'll see you on the next one. Is this thing on? Cool. Hello and welcome to the next episode of Uncultured the Podcast. I'm your host, Cooper, here to add a little bit of culture to your weeks. This week's guest is Dilruk Jaisinha. I'm so excited. There's a lot more than meets the eye to Australian Sri Lankan Logie winning ABC Utopia actor, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here contestant and renowned comedian Dilruk. Dilruk had no idea how high his backpacker gigs would take him. At 125 kilograms in 2018, he took control of his life and health and went on to lose 40 kilograms. The journey teaching him so much about loving himself at both sizes and the importance of male self-love. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to him about his journey and where he is now and his unprecedented success. So let's get into it. Hi, thank you so much, Thoruk, for um, joining me. I know it's a uh, it's not a an amazing time in lockdown at the moment, so I appreciate you taking the time out. My pleasure. I was glad I'm able to do it. I have so many questions. I admire you so much. I'm I'm really I'm. Oh, oh, thank you so much. Um, just a bit of background. I run a podcast called Uncultured, the podcast, and what we do is every week we interview um, people of color in Australia and beyond, but primarily Australia, who are just killing it in the game in hopes to platform their stories but also to inspire other people of color it's kind of good to know that it's possible and that we're capable and so I think you really epitomize that for a lot of people so I'm excited to to talk oh well that's that's super lovely thank you so much for those kind words I appreciate that a lot um what about you what's what give uh before we uh in terms of your cultural background, what would your what's your heritage and stuff like that? If you don't mind me asking, yeah, of course. My parents are Indian. I was born here and brought mm-hmm. up here from South India, uh, so I speak Tamil. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, my I'm, grandparents uh, are from Kerala. Oh no so way! I'm from Kerala of, as well. Of, yeah, so a bit of uh, South Indian in me somewhere there. Really? Like, so, mum was born in Sri Lanka. Right. Um, but genetically speaking, I would technically be half Indian, but of course, you know, don't talk about that because of the Yeah, that's a- <laughs> <Is it? laughs> sorry, my 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 boyfriend is Sinhali, so I know all of yeah. the the half me situation. <laughs> well, especially because my brother's uh brother is married to a Gujarati girl, they live in Mumbai, oh, and really? his daughter. Uh, you know, mum was saying, you know, she's half Indian, half Sri Lanka. I'm like, no, technically she's three-quarter Indian, quarter Indian. <laughs> and I started ripping into mum because you have to be bloody having Indian parents and now I'm half Indian. I can't. <laughs> Which is obviously it's the last ingest. name, isn't it? It's a last name that is the identifier. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. A... No, and I, I, I jokingly say I, I like I'll pick and choose when I reveal it. Like if there's like a Indian cultural festival or whatever that they wanted me to book, I'm like, yeah, 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 half Indian, all of it. Take, take, full Indian, whatever. You know? Oh my God, that's <laughs> not, so good. Because I'm technically not lying. I'm like, yeah. I mean, Selective identity. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, you were born and grown up in here in Australia, so I can understand your motivations around a podcast like this because I'm guessing when you grew up, the number of people of color or people that look like you and your 
family and stuff would have been less and less on TV and radio, right? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And I think, and this is a very generalized statement, but maybe without the barriers that um, we think are there, I feel like my aspirations might have been different. I might have immediately been like, yep, I want to be on TV or yep, I want to get into comedy straight away. But it took uh-huh. more time to come to that realization than it might have taken had I been able to see more people who looked like me on screen, if that makes sense. 100%. Um, yeah. And, and it just means that it is also an option. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. And and so what is it that you do other than this, this podcast, obviously, but uh, what yeah. are the other avenues of uh, that you work in? I'm a uni student. I'm doing digital social mm. media and law, and um, mm. I'm dabbling in stand-up on the side. So I've been doing that for more or less a year, but oh, because cool. of COVID, it's kind of uh, yeah. it, the momentum is like up and then down and then uh, up and down. So waiting for lockdown to lift. Once it lifts, hopefully I can get back into stand-up. Yeah, well, that's awesome that you started doing stand-up. How have you found the first year of stand-up so far? Other it's than obviously great. the COVID yeah. Um, but yeah, like between say the first gig, where was your first one? My first gig was actually in uh, the Giant Dwarf. So that was oh cool. Yeah, it was yeah. it was awesome. Oh yeah, the old theater I performed a lot of my solo shows. I've done a couple in there. Really? So yeah. I really like the Giant Dwarf space. Yeah. Yeah, it's a similar theater. I think the new one is a bit more intimate, which I like about it. Yeah. You caught the bug? Yeah, I was trying to do do it about. Uh, once a week if I could but then obviously uh, that was disrupted by COVID but um, but definitely keen to get into it are you still doing stand-up uh in varying degrees obviously um be with lockdown it's like zoom gigs and stuff like that yeah. but yeah. uh but otherwise outside of it yeah can, like I think just before Melbourne went into this current lockdown um I was in Brisbane for the right. Brisbane Comedy Festival, I yes. got lucky enough to I just get in. It, it's weird. It's I don't know. Which, I don't know which one's harder or not. But because when you're established, it's harder because your actual income is reliant on it. Like you know, Financial there's no other impact. source of income. But because I'm established, it means that I have a chance for me to not have a gig for a month and still be able to do it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas when you're new, I found that every when I was starting out, because I bombed for the first two years, I reckon. Really, <laughs> I doubt that. Well, no, I, okay, maybe not bombed, but I wasn't good. I really loved doing it. It's because I loved comedy that I knew that what group comedy looks like, and I knew right. I wasn't doing that. I didn't, I didn't take that as a fail. I just accepted it as being like, oh, okay, cool. Like I just have to work harder and just keep at it because I loved actually doing it. So I think it was two things that worked for me. And when I look back, even back then, even though I wasn't good, um, the two things I had going for me that I felt like my peers didn't have is one, I was absolutely convinced that this is all I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And yeah. whether it takes, uh, you know, 10 years or 20 years to become full-time, it's just what I'm going to do. There's no, no doubt in my mind that, that uh, that's, this is where I'm headed. And, and I think because of that, it took away any pressure of feeling I have to be good by this certain point. Because right. it didn't matter when I became good, uh, consistently good rather. It was just like, it's just an inevitability and I have yeah. no time pressure on it. And the second thing that I think worked for me, um, and I'm, to date, I don't think I've met too many people, especially in my sort of era that I started with, that loves it as much as I did. And mm-hmm. and I would go, even if I was not performing, I'd be sitting at the back of a comedy club watching nearly mm-hmm. every night. I, I was working for a small, I was working for a big accounting firm. I was at uh, KPMG and then um, 
In fact, there's another Sydney comedian, Suren Jayamana, that you may yes. have come across. Yes. So he and I used to work together. Really? And uh, I had no, yeah. So he had done like raw comedy and a couple other new comedy nights and things like that. Right. And I thought he was an absolute rock god for having done. He'd done like four gigs, but that was just like, I could not believe I knew someone who yeah. does, who had done stand-up comedy. And I was like obsessed with the idea. And then I got fired and he didn't. So what? I, yeah, I was no good. I, I, I was just mucking around was at work too much. Was it just redundancy or was it actually yeah, like? Yes. Yeah, okay. it was closer to redundancy because it was during the financial crisis and uh, my probation period, six months, they didn't extend it basically. They right. so they but they gave everyone else, you know, full contracts. <laughs> my, I was the only one who didn't get the probation. Blessing in make it past probation. Well, at the time, yeah, correct. But uh, which at the time I didn't feel obviously because my mm. folks had spent such a fortune on me to send me to Australia to get this degree, to get this job, and yeah. I got it. And then I uh, fucked it. And so then I started. I was working for a small accounting firm. There was about seven of us were in the office, and I did that for about a year because I remember when the KPMG thing wasn't going well. I kind of asked myself a question like, I'm doing this job purely because I the money is good, but I hate the work. And so I thought. You know, I remember someone saying, oh, it's really tough now, but you'll enjoy it, you know, once once you go up the ladder. And I mm. saw the topmost position I could get and I didn't even want to be them. So I was like, why am I struggling now to get a position I don't want? And I saw a quote that said, you know, there's no point climbing up a ladder that's leaning against the wrong wall. Oh, and that beautiful. hit me like a ton of bricks. And so when I then started you know, this thinking to myself, well, I did this purely for money. What if I had all the money in the world? What would I do? And I remember comedy like kicked in because I was like, yeah, I've always wanted to know what stand-up comedy is like. Wanted, you know, if money was not my motivator, I just go at it, right? And who cares whether I'm getting paid or not? I just want to be yeah. part of the comedy scene. And so I knew I wanted to do it, but it took me a whole year before I finally did my first gig after that firing and everything because oh, it's probably like my... Uh, 11 year anniversary of that and then my first gig was uh the 21st of september 2010 and wow. that was because i i was really scared to get up on stage because even i have or had any type of i have a fear of public speaking i should say i had a fear of public speaking i would like shake and shiver before i did it but also i think i was scared of failing because i'd already failed yeah. Felt like I'd failed accounting. Yeah. And then this dream I had deep down of wanting to do comedy was like something that I had never really given a chance to breathe oxygen into. Yeah. So if I now bring it out in the open and it turns out I'm shit at that, then fuck, uh, what, what do I have? You and know, something you actually so, care about as well. I cared about, yeah. yeah. So my understanding is that you came to Australia from Sri Lanka for uni, right? Yes. Yes. So I was 19, and, came here yes, for a uh, degree in accounting and finance. So what about before that? Like the person that you were in when you were growing up in Sri Lanka, um, what part of Sri mm. Lanka did you grow up in? In Colombo. In Colombo. So when, when you yep. were growing up in Colombo, what were your passions? What fueled you? Because you mentioned that comedy kind of came in after a point when you were in accounting. Was, that, was it always infused as part of your dream or was it something that kind of popped up later yeah i i i watched uh eddie murphy's delirious stand-up special uh when i was like 10 or 11 years old i was very young uh when i saw it and i hadn't seen anything like it um and i couldn't believe that it existed this thing called stand-up or whatever like it was not i, I we i think we hired it thinking it was an eddie murphy movie not realizing it's this other entire thing yeah. and it was so funny and obviously a lot of it doesn't hold up now in the lens of 
um, the current climate that we're in. But that's a testament to how huge that special is that even reached Colombo, Sri Lanka. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so my brother and I would watch it and I'd mem- try to memorize all the routines and things like that. But, you know, in 1995, 96 in Sri Lanka, there was no, um, you know, that I just was it's not a thing at all. Like yeah. to even imagine me doing it, but I knew I loved it. Then my dad started, you know, whenever he, he worked overseas. So if he ever came across like a, a Chris Rock stand-up special or a Lenny Henry or Eddie Izzard or whatever he could find, he would bring it back. So I think slowly, slowly cultivated my love of stand-up. And then I think we got like illegally, I think in Sri Lanka, they started showing NBC and we had like Jay Leno and uh, and uh, Conan O'Brien. And so they'd have stand-ups on that as well. And I think yeah. I remember being all excited. I was like, oh, there's a new stand-up. Like for me, just the, I just, I don't know what, is wrong in my wiring that the idea of one person getting all that attention in front of all these people by just by making them laugh is something that just lit me the fuck up every time I thought of that. I would say in terms of passions growing up, yeah, I mean, I never did stand up, but I comedy, broadly speaking, whether it's, you know, S. Ventura, Jim Carrey movies, or um, Mr. Bean, I just loved the whole that. Thing. And yeah, so I grew up in a family, uh, in a house with 14 people in total. So my dad is Buddhist, my mom is Muslim, and I went to a Catholic school. And so in the house I grew up in, my parents are still together, but because he worked overseas, we grew up with mom's side of the family. And, you know, in this big Muslim house of like 14 people, um, you know, if you, I, I guess when you had humor, you got more attention. And uh, I think that's probably where it sort of cultivated. And my dad was the funny one in his group of mates. So having a dad who lives overseas and he shows up and you can see him being funny. And I know that he, I get more attention from him. If I have a new joke to tell or whatever, (laughs) he pulled me into the circle of friends of his that were having, it's like, Oh, come show these uncles, show these uncles that trick you showed (laughs) me. And, you know, so I guess that just seeps into this child's brain that if you're funny, you get attention and you get love. I'm just lucky that I, uh, found a thing that would be normally annoying at parties, which is I love to talk about myself. I've just found a way to monetize. So it's really beautiful that you can find that chain and fig- like pinpoint exactly when and how um, comedy came uh, to be something that you latched onto, and you've obviously powered through with uh, with it, and you've got a talent for it. And I appreciate you saying talent, but it's actually funny that you say that, Kripa. I, I even just a couple of hours ago, I was talking to a friend. We went for a walk, uh, and um, he, uh, I said how I proudly describe myself as not being talented at anything because I don't think there's anything I've ever done. I, there's nothing that I do today that when I started I wasn't a, I was a shit at. Like I, everything that I do, I've noticed that I've had to actually work on, which is. Which sounds like I'm being self-deprecating, but it's actually kind of like I I find that a more freeing thing because it it makes me feel like, oh, okay, so if there's something else in the future that I want to do, I might not be good at it straight away. But if I put my mind to it and actually commit to failing and failing and over and over again, then I can get good at it. So in a Mm. weird way it then opens up more possibilities where like if you if you believe that you can do whatever you want as long as you set your mind to it, then you start to choose all the things that really matter to you. I've never seen the snow even from a distance and it would be great if I was a cool snowboarder, but it doesn't mean anything to me. So I'm like, I don't care if I'm not good at snowboarding, yeah, but yeah, say yeah. something like, you know, 
cooking or whatever like then i'll be like okay yeah one day i want to be good at cooking so i should really start to learn how to practice at that or whatever you know yeah no i think i think that makes sense i think but also i feel and feel free to disagree i think the talent can also be something you grow into so it could mean that right you started off as you know say you were really shit at whatever as yeah. when you were yeah. starting out i think the fact that you've been able to work on it and put putting your hard work into it and develop it into a talent is uh-huh. Uh-huh. thank um, you no i appreciate that thank you yeah it's it, it is a funny one i've 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 remember saying that the if talent was something that comes to you quicker than it does to other people then i think my only true talent is i think i have an ability to be grateful quicker than most people which mm-hmm. is that i've noticed that i if currently right now in this, this lockdown i be completely frank with you it's the this is the part of the darkest cloud that i've had in a long time i'm in a negative funk because of you know my family's back in sri lanka my brother's in mumbai it's been over 18 months since i've seen them and it's and I, it's been two years since i've been back to sri lanka and and i am someone who used to go back you know three times a year and i found that in spite of the headspace that i'm in in spite of how much i sometimes just want to cry into a pillow my brain just quickly starts picking and choosing the things that i, I should be grateful or I, I am grateful for and i'm like fuck i'm so happy that i have that talent <laughs> like it, it it has pulled me out of a lot of uh, uh, shittier moments but yeah. being able to quickly snap into a a mode that starts choosing to find the things that are that are going well yeah. Uh, is something that I think I've noticed comes quicker to me than it does to other people. That's a brilliant talent considering how much <laughs> money I've wasted on gratitude journals and like trying to instill <laughs> this into myself. Um, I think Have you wait, tell me about that I'm fascinated so when you say wasted on journals have you bought many journals or have you just bought so have you so have you run I'm, through them or So I'm self-proclaimed I'm addicted to buying books but also notebooks uh, so empty notebooks. Uh-huh. And I've got uh-huh. some of the most beautiful notebooks. I've got a brilliant gratitude journal, which is like scientifically researched and curated into this really, really. Which um, one is it? I love that. It's um. You know who, it's, who? it's so it's the YouTube channel, and it's it's a Nordic name. It's like Kyrgyzstan. Okay. No, no, I'm not familiar. Well, I'll, okay. I'll link it to you. Okay, that sounds right up my alley. Like this is a total safe space here. If you, <laughs> I love this stuff. They, they did all the scientific research and created this amazing journal. I bought it and I have, I probably have about 15 empty books. Um, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm an avid book buyer and not an avid book user. So Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I think that's okay too. Um, at least I'm putting this way. I'm trying to convince myself that it's okay too, because I'm similar. I would buy a lot of. I'm very big on self help stuff and things like that. Yeah. And but not all of them do I finish. But then I've realized it doesn't matter because as long as I get some kind of lesson out of it, yeah. even if I haven't completed it, then it's fine because at least it pushed me towards being better than I was had yeah. I not bought the book. Yeah, and sometimes. Sometimes the process of buying it is the self-help. So, I mean. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Retail therapy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely elements of, yeah. I've noticed that I am definitely a fiend for someone watching a lot of YouTube inspirational videos and you start to convince yourself that you feel better because you're, you know, you're celebrating someone else's success. But if I'm not too careful, I realize a lot of the time true fulfillment doesn't come unless I take action myself. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It is your action is what really at the end of the day that really pushes yourself towards fulfillment. Because, you know, it's like if you're into sports, you can watch a team 
play a sport and win and you feel like you've won that is great mm. but after a while you need to find your own wins and not just yeah. outsource it to other people yeah that's a that's a great point and i think that's why self help stuff goes viral on youtube because people are living vicariously through mm. other people's achievements and other people's you know daily chores yeah. and everything that they you know the whole day in the life of follow me while this like influencer gets up at like 6am goes for a run and i'm like in bed yeah. eating a packet of crisps just like yeah <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I, it's a it's a double edged sword because on the flip side it, it can unnaturally make you feel shit like one of mm. my favorite books is actually one which has a terrible title as far as i'm concerned but it's a really good book um the subtle art of not giving a fuck i think mm. it 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 it's sort of like a it's a very aggressive title uh which obviously is grabbing and good on them for having great marketing but the 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 truth behind the book is the opposite which is it's about giving a fuck about the things that really matter as opposed to not yes. giving a fuck about instagram or whatever and and it and i yeah i found a lot of benefit from reading that book about realizing how much we waste time feeling shit about ourselves just because we're not living the life that we are being told we should be living right yes i actually well this is a bit of a bit of a spanner but i found that book very difficult to apply to my life tell me yeah yeah tell me so i mean i had had this debate with my friends like some friends who've absolutely loved that book and they've grown from it and become um you know being able to apply that stuff and change their life um but when i read it i felt like it was quite a it was it was quite attacking um it felt yeah. like and i think that works for some people i think it probably just doesn't yeah. work for me uh i think it was my inner critic talking rather than my inner healer or my inner you know the 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 good side it felt like i was yeah it was my inner critic tapping in yeah i it's it, that resonates with me what you're saying because i've tried to identify these two voices that i ha- that i need or in my life which is i have the uh, the monk who is there to kind of look at the bigger picture and really give me that that you know big picture views that i need to remember and what's important in my life and to navigate certain philosophical issues but the monk alone isn't enough i also need like this drill sergeant to just fucking yeah. yell at me yeah. and tell me to cut the shit and that yeah. i'm being too soft on myself and my struggle is finding the balance between when i need to listen to which voice because i can't listen to the monk when in certain points because it's too soft it doesn't benefit me because uh, another thing about me is that up until 2018 i was um, you know massive uh, uh, binge eater and i didn't exercise and i was about 125 kilos and um i've managed to lose about 40 and keep it off um and that's because of learning how to balance that monk and drill sergeant because if i only listen yeah. to the kind monk then yeah none of it matters all of this is bullshit and you know uh we're just uh, specking time and a drop why would i bother trying but yeah. the truth is i still want to make the best of my day and certain behaviors and habits of mine wasn't allowing me to feel that fulfillment and and the same with booze like i used to be a massive boozer 5 years ago and um and i had to quit because of how uh, gross and fucked up i was getting and if i didn't listen to the drill sergeant that wouldn't have happened you know i needed that hard yeah. cut the shit stop feeling sorry for yourself and fucking do something about it chat at the yeah. same time if it was only that voice it's so defeating that that i probably will cause inaction as opposed to actual movement it's sometimes easy to slip into just feeling sorry for yourself and you know crawling into a hole and just allowing everything to happen around you but um i was how old ask- are you if you don't mind me asking oh uh 
Yeah, right. So this is honestly like, trust me, if you asked me these questions when I was your age, I would have nearly a 180 view on all of this. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's like, it's, these are the, the it, so many of the things that I've come to learn about myself has only kicked in in the last four years and I'm 36. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? So, yeah. so, you know, I, I would say things like that in a critic and all of that, like the fact that you're even aware of it, the fact that you even know that there's mechanisms like that in plays, I think puts you leaps and bounds ahead of where I ever was back when I was 24. I think I was just about to start at KPMG and I was drinking crazy amounts. And, you know, there was going around the, I think I went to Europe for three months to try and just fucking get it out of my system. And then turns out it it was never going to be like that because it was just part of my identity. Yeah. I was I was gonna ask you about um, the your weight loss journey if if you if uh-huh. you're comfortable talking about it. Um, sure. Now I know that yeah you lost fifty or forty kilos and um, that was down from one hundred and twenty five kilos. What kind of mm. catalyzed that? Like what brought the drill sergeant to the front? It was a combo of the drill sergeant and the monk, I reckon, because it was the December twenty seventeen, December thirty first, twenty seventeen. I was in Sri Lanka, so every year. Uh, I go back to Sri Lanka in December for Christmas and New Year's and uh, all of us, no matter where we were in the world, we'd always try and congregate in the same country uh, in, in, you know, uh, in Christmas time. We were going to a New Year's Eve party, my family, and I had a shirt that I was wearing in Australia, they say three weeks before that in, you know, early December, which I packed for Sri Lanka. And then I didn't wear it until 31st of December. And in the lead up is when I go back home to Sri Lanka, it's about binge eating all the food that I've missed 19 mm. years of childhood memories that I cram into, you know, the three weeks that I'm in yeah, town. Very familiar. And I had, and I'd gotten so overweight that the shirt didn't button up. Mm. And for me, I have always kind of kept using New Year's Day as like a New Year's resolution. I'm like, all right, New Year, New Me, New Year, New Me, and all that stuff. And this particular time, it was quite defeating initially when I couldn't button the shirt up that I was wearing three weeks ago and also there was no nothing else to wear for this party because it's a formal event and um you know not, no one else in my family is as big as me it's not it's too late to go shopping for one and my family we usually make fun of each other quite comfortably right like my dad mm. suffers from parkinson's and we still make jokes about that you know and that's the kind of relationship we have as a family but in this moment none of my family members made fun of me and that was weird because that, that must have been so like evident on my face how sad i felt but then, you know, I think I just put on a T-shirt and a, and, a, and, a, and a blazer and I went for the party and I was so down. I remember leaving the party at 11.30. I didn't wait for the midnight uh, thing to, you know, to, the way to click, tick over. I went to the buffet like three times there as well just to comfort eat. But then I got home and I remember the next morning I had that sadness, but it, it was the for the, because I'd been doing therapy at that point for about a year and a half. So I think I'd finally got to that point of, finding for lack of a better word self-love because so many of my issues around drinking and overeating was masking a lot of issues I had around actual confidence about how I felt about myself whether I liked myself and uh, because it was too painful to acknowledge that I don't like myself I was masking it with you know uh, drinking a lot or being a stand-up comedian and performing you know uh, in front of 200 people I'm like how can I be unconfident look how look, look at me in front of all these people but the deep down it was about a confidence or lack of confidence purely from the fact that I didn't think I deserved self-respect or self-love 
But over that year and a half of therapy, I got to that point of self-love so that when it, this thing hit, when I couldn't butt my shirt up, instead of the voice that I used to have in the past, which is pure negativity saying, ah, oh, you disgusting piece of shit, look at you another year and you're still unhealthy. Um, instead, it was like, hey, that's okay. This is not great, but I still love you. And because I love you, I am going to start restricting you know, how much you eat and make you move a bit more. Like Because I started with a place of self-love, it was easier to actually apply myself to healthier behavior. And I'm very careful to, to discuss about the difference between, you know, um, health versus absolute weight loss or whatever. You know what I mean? Because, mm. you know, there's uh, uh, friends of mine who suffer from weight issues on the other end of the spectrum. You know, it's as, uh, uh, in terms of undereating and stuff like that. But in my case, I always bring it back to healthy habits. I was just eating five meals a day and each meal would be like two servings. And, you know, that no matter what, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of physical, biological health, it's unhealthy for me, you yeah. know, and I didn't want to live like that, especially because both my parents have had bypass surgeries and both have diabetes. So I'm like, no, this is not, there's a real mismatch between who I want to be and the way I'm behaving. That was my turning point, not being happy with who I, uh, the way I looked or felt at that moment but also accepting that just because I am bigger doesn't mean that I am not worthy of my own love and respect. So that was a that was where I kind of short-circuited the usual wiring because what would have happened in the past is because I didn't love and respect myself, it'd be like, oh, you piece of shit, you might as well keep eating and you might as well drink, keep drinking, you know, and have an early death. You know what I mean? Like that voice was clipped. So the, the monk was there and then it was the drill sergeant that would do the restricting, but the monk was the one that said, hey, it's for because we love you. <laughs> How did your life, did you feel your life change when you started becoming healthier? Definitely. I think it is, especially because I put on weight when I was nine. So I used to be a big swimmer for my school at, up at, as a young kid. And then when I stopped, I just stacked it on and didn't lose it effectively until 2018. So that. <laughs> I don't know, 23 years or something like that of feeling like weight was an issue. And to date, it still is, by the way, even though I managed to maintain it, I still struggle with that impulse to overeat and not eat ice cream all the time, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that to me was huge that I, it, that the fact that I not only lost the weight, but I was able to keep it off. And for lack of a better word, just to be able to prioritize my health was something I never thought of doing because I can I can switch it on like I know I've done like diets and and exercise challenges yeah. and I when I'm focused I can get it done but being able to accept it as a lifestyle change was something that felt impossible for me but it came step by step which was quitting drinking back in 2016 that felt like an impossibility to be able to quit drinking you know what I mean mm. like because I used to be drinking so much so the fact that I was able to do that gave me the confidence to go okay if you change that part of you, then you can do, you know, you can probably do the next step, which is learning how to enjoy exercise. And then now I'm in the phase of learning how to eat with, uh, you know, mindfully as opposed to, yeah, because I still struggle with, you know, as soon as I feel sad and right now I'm feeling so homesick and stuff, every impulse of mine is to go to the, is, you know, get yeah. a Ben and Jerry's. So I'm taking it step by step. Yeah. And so in terms of answering your question about do I feel different? Yeah. Difference is, knowing that, you know, circling back to that, as, as long as I put my mind to it, I can achieve it. But mm -hmm. some things will be harder than other things. Like it was easier to quit drinking because you can go cold turkey, you can go zero. Whereas with food, it's much harder because every every 
you know, even a salad it. is a gateway drug, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and we, in fact, before we hit record, I was explaining to you about how uh, I was running late for the podcast mm-hmm. because I had a choice of either being on time or stopping at the supermarket. And it sounds really dumb, but I had felt like I had to prioritize the supermarket because if I didn't, I'd go shopping for it when I was hungry. And if I was hungry and I'd end up buying a bunch yeah. of shit that I don't I know need in a, my it's system. A, it's a dieting trick as well to not go when you are um, yeah. when you are hungry because that means yeah. you're just going to buy more snacks, right? Yeah. And then, the, you know, in terms of feeling as well, like I, I always find it um, dishonest if I didn't say that the aesthetic aspect of weight loss is a big motivator as well. Because I think it is true that we shouldn't be in a world where we, uh, uh, you know, celebrate people's uh say for myself like i should be in a place where i should be happy that i have limbs that work i should be happy that you know my my body you know functions better but the truth is yeah aesthetically it it just uh, made me feel a lot better because for years i had conflated or uh, uh, wrongly thought that being you know uh heavy means that i'm unattractive but thanks to therapy i was able to feel that attractiveness while i was still obese you know before i lost the weight i still started you know i was single for a long time and and for ages it was because i you know i, I didn't know how to feel confident and all that but then even once i started working with, with my therapist and stuff and learning to be like loving myself even as 125 kilos proved to me that i was like yeah i, I can think of myself as you know beautiful when i'm big but when I lost the weight, it also meant that I'm now able to run after a tram and not feel puffed out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or, for example, when performing stand-up, I used to keep a change of shirt backstage because it was identical to whatever I was wearing because it would I would sweat so much after an hour show and I knew I'd do like a meet and greet afterwards. I felt really self-conscious to stand next to wow. people with that. So, so I'd go off stage, take my change into a fresh shirt. So it looked like I was still wearing the same outfit. So not having to do any of that is just incredibly, really rewarding. So yeah, it changed me massively. Yeah, no, that's very inspiring. I know that I'm going to listen back on this and just kind of take it in because I mean, off the record, on the record, I don't mind, but I have like a bit of a binge eating problem as well. And so hearing you talk about it is like, it is so common. And I think the thing is people don't talk about binge eating being an issue um when it comes to eating disorders and yeah it's it's very it's it's it's, it's inspiring how you're able to overcome it and how your life has kind of changed and it might be loving yourself yeah yeah because i think it's a it comes back to a, a being kind to myself and and um you know sometimes the kind thing is for example take a pandemic kids i lose all my work i lose access to my family um in that moment of overwhelming sadness, the kind thing for myself is to allow the ice cream, you know, mm. because it's like it's too hard to do everything all the time. But yeah. the uh, if I keep doing it every day for 30 days, then the kind thing to do is to to stop it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's learning which point. And that's where the drill sergeant and the monk, you know. Yeah. Sometimes the monk is right. You should have the ice cream because who gives a fuck? We're all, you know, <laughs> the planet's on fire and who knows when we get to, you know, oh, be with God. family. And then the other hand, it's like, yeah, but also, you know, you can't always lean on that excuse. So, yes. um, and I think it's a cultural thing, Kripa, for me, where growing up, 
in that family of 14, grandma being the matriarch of the family, she would cook these massive pots of biryani. And, you know, again, my ability to put away a lot of food meant that I got attention from the matriarch, you know? Yeah. And she was really proud that I was it's able to do so much. way of showing love. Yeah. So I think subconsciously this, this, this part of me that feels homesick and, 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 and is lacking that love that I have obviously got a brain that says, Oh yeah, but if you eat a lot, then you probably get grandma's love now. So find, mm. you know, find something to binge eat. And so I try now to ask myself, do I really want chips or do I just need a hug right now? <laughs> and Aww. you know, it's, it's, it's uh, sometimes the chips, which is good, which is fine. If you know, it's just genuinely, I just feel like some fucking chips. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. But sometimes it's just more about feeling lonely and just needing that connecting with someone, you know? Yeah. And, and it is, it is, a time that everyone's going through where I think there is a bit more space to listen to the monk as well, because yeah. um, it's not, it's not the easiest kind of most normal situation that we're all locked down at the moment. So no, it's- no, exactly. And it, that reminds me of a quote I love that I keep repeating to myself during this last year and a half, which is uh, a guy called Victor Franklin, Fra- Victor E. Franklin, who, mm-hmm. um, the, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one of the lines is, um, abnormal reactions to abnormal situations is normal behavior. Yeah. So letting go of this expectation we had of ourselves of how we behaved pre-pandemic and holding ourselves to that standard is unfair because we are dealing with something that's really unnatural and weird. So if you're finding, like I spoke to a friend who said she started crying in the supermarket because they'd moved the honey then where they normally kept it. And I'm like, I get it because your brain's in overdrive, you know? It's like, yeah. you know, if our, our brain has all these apps that are running in the background that we can't close, but it's still draining our battery. So, of course, the honey has moved and suddenly all this, this the, yeah. the, everything's all over the place and it's just you want a fucking ball, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, that's that's something I'm sure everyone's going through in their own in their own way. Um, Daruk, you've had since kind of your journey kind of being fired from uh, your accounting job and then finding comedy, mm. you've risen and broken ceilings beyond just beyond just stand-up comedy. You've gone into acting as well. You're on screen. Um, and and I think that's, that's amazing, especially in a white Australia um, where mm. media opportunities are, you know, few and far between. How, what, what kind of led you to acting? You've won a Logie Award which is amazing. Like I I (laughs) honestly, that is the dream. And I think that um, is, there's obviously extra hurdles and sometimes it's good to look at it as, Hey, I've defeated hurdles, but other times I know it's also good to look at it as, you know, this was something that, you know, when, when you've got the drive for it, it'll come to you. What's your journey been like firstly? Um, That's a really interesting one because I, um, the hurdles absolutely exist. I would never be one of those people who say they don't exist and 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 they they're you know there's so much systemic uh, issues around why you know certain castes or whatever they don't automatically think that a, a person of color or a woman or a, a, you know sexuality uh, based diversity there's diversity issues that are hundred percent systemic. I'm not ever going to be that type of person who goes, oh, just get over no. The thing that I'm about to say, though, is that I kind of, uh, I I guess I I didn't care that they existed. I'm Mm. like, because I kept bringing back to myself and going, I'm 
not good enough yet. Or rather, my five-minute stand-up set has only 30 seconds of bits that are funny. How do I get another four and a half minutes that works? Like, you know, the first few years of stand-up, I said it was really struggle because I, yeah, I wasn't very good when I started. I was quite likable. I think I had likability, um, you know, on stage, but there was no humor. People bagged for me, and but I just couldn't bring it. So I just kept focusing on that as to rather than going, oh, this audience is doesn't want to see a brown person or mm. this casting doesn't it not I think how this was going to lead to anything or whatever was irrelevant to me because I felt like I like I won the lottery by discovering something that I love doing regardless of how what, what scale I was doing it at whether I was getting paid or whether it's been seen by anyone else I just felt so lucky that I got to do it in the first place the closest analogy I can give is is uh, is like video games like being able to uh, explore a particular level for me I wasn't interested in uh, you know progressing the levels straight away I just wanted to keep playing each level and I'm yeah. like oh my god there's so much more to explore before I go to level two and I want to yeah. go to that thing I want to play that backpacker gig and I want to you know do this footy club or whatever it was it was just I was excited by the actual work itself then to if I were to look at the things like going, oh, I'm playing this game, but this person here is also playing the same game, but their controller is much better than mine because they've got systemic privileges. I didn't let that upset me or genuinely didn't kind of give it oxygen because I figured if I'm, you know, I can let my work fight the systemic issues, uh, not only because I was easy to work with, but also then the work became good. You know what I mean? So just by focusing on, work hard, but also be work easy to work with, I think then started opening up areas for me that I guess at the time I didn't even really think about as being not, yeah. not, not as many people around. And I think it has to do with the fact that I didn't grow up here. I didn't view Australia as having this issue of not enough diverse voices or anything like that. A, because I'm too dumb to pick up on it, <laughs> right? <laughs> but B, but B, in Sri Lanka, you know, I mean, everyone was brown. So I guess I never, yeah, I didn't, I do, I do take pride in how, you know, the things that I've achieved hundred percent. Like, but the thing about, I think with regards to the hurdles and the fact that I, you know, didn't pay much attention to it. Uh, I think it's important for me to point out that that in itself is a privilege to position to take because it, because there are other people who were doing that fight. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think it, it would be very remiss of me not to acknowledge that, that the reason why I could not put energy into that is because there were people who were smarter than me. And, you know, there's so many things like whether it's Screen Australia, so many panels that they run about how to increase diversity and, and you know, they talk about uh, casting and it, it's happening across the board. And I feel really shitty to if I wouldn't, if I didn't, you know, take, acknowledgement of that that it's yeah. a privilege in itself that i'm able to like buckle down and focus on my work because there are people smarter and more capable than me being able to have those harder conversations and push through push those hurdles down you know what i mean yeah and and in your own in your own way as well you're bringing the hurdles down by even representing someone who looks like us on the screen is its own kind of right. i think motivation for people who are like all right it, this can exist and this is an option for me and this is something I can do. There's two sides of it. There's one side which is 
um, internalized barriers where we're like, oh, you know, this isn't something that I think I'm equipped to do. Right. Then the other side of it is barriers systemic, systemically, right, in terms of hiring or in terms of unconscious bias. And I think there's different work that applies to bringing down those hurdles. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that because, yeah, I feel like I think, yeah, I, I wouldn't be as good at fighting those hurdles in, you know, more directly or verbally, because like I said, I don't, don't have the uh, smarts for it or the, the, the to, you know, the gab for it. But what I can do is try and do what I do well so that maybe say if it's like a, a casting thing, they can say point towards me, go and see, they cast that guy and that was successful. So why can't we do it with this other brown person or whatever? You know what I mean? Like yeah. being able to at least, break them down from that perspective just from yeah i feel like i can contribute in that way without necessarily putting my head in the sand like an ostrich or anything yeah yeah no, <laughs> sure. i hope that made sense that no, no, i was like oh look sense. i think it's there is work to be done or there's work that has been done that yeah. i i wasn't directly engaging in but that doesn't mean that those problems didn't exist or do exist and there are people that, that it is worth fighting for i, I i'll give you to, to counter my thing i'll give you some points where i'm like oh fucking hell um well i did a gig at uh in in Fremantle, is at a yacht club and it was this really fucking expensive you know privileged people and it was around afl uh, the, the theme of the night so i had a bit about how i was at a uh, a footy club gig uh for collingwood and and, and richmond at the time and uh, um some and I was I was just giving them their team shit uh, about how shit their teams or whatever and someone yelled fuck you 7-Eleven. Afterwards, this woman they, with this massive like you know clearly her arm of jewelry was worth more than my you know the apartment <laughs> I live in. Uh, she just comes up to me. She goes, "Oh, I was really enjoying what you talked about until you mentioned racism because you know what we're over it." And right? wait, did, so the fact sorry. that. So let me understand. I think I don't know if I'm following. So did somebody in the audience like did a heckler say fuck you 7-Eleven? No. So the so the fuck you 7-Eleven happened at a previous gig. Oh, okay, and okay. I was yeah, referencing yeah, yeah. okay. I thought there was a heckler in the, at the yacht Fremantle club. gig. No. No, no, no. Not at the yacht club. The yacht club was about footy and I told them right. the story about performing right. the last time I performed at a footy function. Right. Someone said fuck you 7-Eleven. Right. And it got a big laugh and everyone loved it. But it was afterwards while I was standing there, you know, yeah. my ego being stroked by all these different rich people. This one woman <laughs> came up and said, oh, I was really disappointed you brought up racism because we're over it. And, she, you know, she would have been like 70 or something like that. I'm like, well, fuck, when were you into it? Like, you're obviously like you're <laughs> over it now, but you must have loved it. And obviously I didn't say any of that. I just walked out of there. And to me, that's a classic moment of feeling like realizing how much of a difficulty it is. I'm just sharing a story from my life. All of a sudden it becomes a political statement. Or if, for example, if I have a bad gig and I know a lot of my uh, um, comedians who identify as women talk about this saying that, that they feel that they're representing all women if a gig goes good or bad. You know what I mean? That burden isn't there if you're a straight white person, you're not a straight white mm. male, for example. So things like that yeah. is obviously something that really bums me out. So that's why I threw those examples in to show that I'm not saying that I, uh, that yeah. those hurdles don't exist and, and they absolutely do. And it's, and it's always frustrating because sometimes you, you, you almost feel like I have to second guess some of my successes because I have this voice in my, se- this head that has been put in by other people that, 
you're not here because you're good. You're here because they need to fill a quota. Yeah, yeah. No, and I think you know I mean? that so statement is very familiar, whether it's in acting or comedy or whether it's in the workplace mm. in a professional sense. Um, but I also understand the perspective of, like, removing all the barriers and obstacles and working with who you are and kind of not playing the comparison game. And I, I can see how that can do wonders for focusing on oneself and focusing on one's own career. So Yeah, just purely because it felt like there's a lot of limited energy that I have. It's too fucking noisy out there and it's too frustrating that, especially at the time in terms of roles, whenever I got any auditions, it was always like, you know, delivery guy or Uber, Uber driver or whatever, like, you know, and just going, okay, look, I'm lucky that I don't need the paycheck to just say yes to every audition. So I'm just going to say no uh, and then choose the roles, whatever that come in that don't lean on that. My love of stand-up meant that I had self-awareness about how, where I was at. Yeah. So, um, I, so I would say it's like I was very unrealistic about where I was headed, but I was very realistic about where I was at. So where I was at, I was able to look at it very objectively and go, this is not good. And you know it's not good because no one laughed. There's no two words about it. Oh, there's a bit more laughter today. Great, you've improved. That's all you can focus. That's all you can you know, do for the moment. The future, I was super unrealistic. I'm like, fuck it. This is my dream. I'm going to dream big. I'm going to, every time I, I remember every time I performed, I would wear an outfit that I thought was worthy of being at the comedy festival gala or something like that, mm. even if it was a backpacker gig. So I would choose to dress up, not from day one, day one, I used to initially like the first, first year, I think I was very slop. What's the word? Sloppy. When I dressed Adam Richard made fun of me about my clothes. And then everything since then I started taking my, taking it seriously, like a job, like the way I dress for accounting, I would be like, all right, I want to think about what I'm wearing on stage. And, yeah. and I was very deliberate about those things. Even though I was bombing, I looked good. <laughs> you might as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm really interested in hearing, and, and uh, we'll wrap it up with this question, but when you talk about your goals and dreams as you were kind of getting into the scene, being unrealistic, has that translated and like now in 10 years' time, are your goals still unrealistic and where do you hope to be in the future? Uh, I am lucky that I feel like I've achieved all my goals. <laughs> like I, Amazing. I, I mean, uh, fair enough. You've, you've achieved yeah. quite a bit. <laughs> no, but, 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 but that's, that's almost a slight cop out though, because the goal was to live full, like be a full-time stand-up comedian. Right. So the goal was to be able to pay rent and buy groceries with doing comedy. So I managed to get that, which is great. Then in 2017, November, my parents saw me headline and that I didn't realize was the ultimate goal. They could not believe that this idiot son of theirs from <laughs> Sri Lanka has now got a line of people standing to take photos with him. And that particular trip, you know, we were traveling from Melbourne to Sydney. Someone in the airport asked if they couldn't get a photo uh, that, with oh me. My and so my, the fact that I could see them beaming, um, is something that I didn't realize was the ultimate goal. So that to me was career peak. And so for me, ever since then, everything I've uh, take it as being bonus territory. So everything yeah. from now. So weirdly enough, the Logie happened after that. And, um, <laughs> and, and it is, as far as I'm that. concerned, yeah, it is, it is a bonus as far as I'm concerned because I'm not being like, you know, a bullshit artist. It is way more than I 
planned on yeah. thinking of achieving. So for yeah. me, the idea of being full-time was unrealistic because I was no yeah. good. I was like, yeah. how is anyone going to pay for this shit? Uh, but <laughs> I was like, no, I'm just going to keep going. And so I, um, but how does that translate to today? Well, what it means is that I never stopped working hard. In fact, I'd argue that I work harder now. Goals-wise, I've kind of don't, I don't know, I don't give myself big long-term goals anymore as much as like I go, oh, well, my goal for next year uh, is to get better at doing an act out and sitting like in the scene without breaking the scene mm. more. So, so I'm, more specific I, I, goals. Very specific goals to that. Or here's an even better one is that I feel like so much of my material, I know it's funny because people laugh and they've consistently laughed around the country. So I know that objectively I can tick the box of being funny. But a lot of my material that I find really funny or gets the biggest laugh aren't really funny on paper. So my goal for next year is to have More bits improv. that are actually fucking like stronger on paper. They're a funny joke and they're not just funny because the way I say it or the, you right. know, my, my, my sizzle that I bring to it, the delivery. Cause I know my delivery is stronger than my writing. You know what I mean? I know mm-hmm. I have a lot more flair on stage. So for me, the goal is to be a better comedic writer. So yeah. I try and bring it back to that, you know, the thing that we talked about earlier, which is like, what is the thing that's in front of me? Mm-hmm. So I don't, it's not like I don't think about the future. But I try not to spend too much time worrying about that because there's too many things in the immediate life that needs to be fixed. And I, I mean, like you said, you've you've kind of met the goals that you had, and beyond now, anything's a bonus. So I I, I think the fact that you're focusing on very specific um, goals means that you're uh, polishing the art, your the way that you're actually crafting your craft of the art, which I think. A lot of people don't have the that privilege of getting to that stage and being like, you know, I'm going to put my time into making sure that the way that I p- deliver and perform and write is exactly to my standard. So, I Oh, think- just getting better. Like, I just want to know that next year um, that I know I felt like I've improved. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. um, and it's, to be honest, it's the same mentality I had on day one, which was always focused on how did I perform? Did I, did, where could I have gone better? removing the expectation of success meant that I focused on the things that were in my control, which is yeah. my perception of how I was doing versus the expectation of how yeah. it was meant to go. Mm-hmm. Like I would genuinely bomb, but learn from that bomb and, and see how it. I can Im- reflect on it. So, so I think that mechanism is what I'm still doing. And yeah, it's, I'm, I'm lucky that, that financial decisions are less uh, um, of a factor now because of where I'm at, but but that's again because I've kept consistent with what I'm actually focused on. Yes, yeah. Well, Doruk, it's been so nice chatting with you. Thank you so much for. Your oh, my pleasure. No, I'm, I'm so, so glad we got to do this. Yeah, I hope I didn't like deviate too much from. No, I was just about to say I loved the tangents we went on. I think we um, <laughs> we talked about some some pretty pretty like I think it's very fine for me to just back and forth ask you questions but just hearing the story behind it is is um is an added specialness to it so so thank you right i'm glad it's up mate you're absolutely welcome and fingers crossed we be on the same lineup sooner than later yeah yeah definitely and if i can just quickly plug uh my podcast that i have as well yes of course i was just about to say you can follow me on uh, at dilrook j on instagram that's probably the best way to go or dilrookj.com for my touring details uh, if that ever comes back, <laughs> but uh, but otherwise, I have a podcast called Fitbit, which is the uh, uh, weight loss sort of 
story starts there, which is how me and a friend, you know, we were both 125 kilos and uh, we had a bet for a thousand dollars to see which one of us lose weight first. And, um, and that sort of podcast tracks that bet, but also since then we've interviewed various comedians and personalities about their weight loss stories or health stories really. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I'm, I'm, um, I'm keen to start listening to it. Uh, thanks, mate. And you can follow us at Uncultured Pod on Instagram. And I guess we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Bye.